Uh, I hope you're still in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue on with our series through Peter's letters as we've been examining them and in hopes of uh, ascertaining, so to speak, what the Apostle Peter has to say to these churches and likewise what he has to say to us as well. Uh, As we've been noting, uh, these letters are really born out of Peter's personal experiences. These aren't just Letters where Peter's just writing about theoretical doctrines. These are letters that Peter is writing out of his personal experiences. Uh, I think that you can see that as we've been trying to parallel what he is saying here with either uh, specific instances from his times with, uh, with, of course, Jesus Christ from the Gospels or from parallel accounts where he is in the Acts of the Apostles. But what I want us to really remember, of course, is that these are very bold truths. Uh, you can very much hear and learn and actually, I think, distinguish from these letters just P- Peter's personality. Uh, Uh, He's a very bold man, a very bold preacher, and he's very devout and sort of stubborn with the truth, so to speak. And uh, you can see that here in these letters as he is making some very bold statements. Um, But what I love is that Peter is writing so passionately about truths that these churches could really bank on. They could really trust in, they could really depend on these words, and I would like to say that we too can trust on them as well. Uh, Last week, we took a big chunk of this first letter, uh, and we sought to examine uh, Peter's sort of digression maybe is maybe not the right word but his his sort of uh, uh, sort of articulation of this word submission uh, we looked at first peter's uh, chapters 2 and 3 and looked at all of these different spheres in which the apostle peter writes on ways that these churches and these as he calls them sojourners and pilgrims ought to submit themselves to one another and how are they are to live and fight to live honorably and commendably with their brothers and sisters and their neighbors. Uh, If you go to chapter 2, verse 11, we saw that there where he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we noted that there, Peter is encouraging them, as he says, strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, as those who have been born again unto this lively hope through Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.3, that they are now called to live commendably, honorably, and they have to sort of fight for that. And in their fight for living in this way, this sort of new way, uh, that's how they signal to those who are around them that they are pilgrims, that they have been born again. This is the way that we let others know that there is a difference in us. But there's one more crucial way here that pops up in 1 Peter 3 that signals our allegiance to Jesus. That lets everyone know that this is who we are. This is now our new identity. This is how we uh, sort of signal to others, to those that we are doing life with, uh, to those that are around us, that we are now changed, as we can go back to 1 Peter 1, 3, that we have been born again. And it's what he mentions here in these verses, which is the doctrine of baptism. 
I was, instead of like we did uh, last week where we took a large chunk of Scripture and tried to keep it all together, I want to just kind of park on these verses at the end of 1 Peter 3 and just uh, go through the doctrine of baptism, especially as Peter explains it here. These verses, verses 18 through 22, uh, you may or may not know, are the inspiration of much controversy for several centuries. Uh, he, not only is Peter referencing the doctrine of baptism in verse 21, he says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth, doth also now save us, which is an interesting way to put it. Baptism, as you may or may not know, is a divergent doctrine for many uh, different denominations and has been for uh, centuries throughout the history of the church. In fact, if you read church history, it's actually sort of a record of sort of baptismal conflict. <laughs> Over how to do it, how to, uh, how to carry it out, how to practice it. What does it mean? What does it symbolize? What, are, what is actually happening, happening in the baptism event? Uh, you can uh, read countless articles and tracts and books about this controversy that has existed. That has sparked uh, schisms and squabbles and struggles within uh, otherwise faithful and connected church members. But also, interestingly enough, he connects, Peter does, baptism with a really interesting picture. If you notice in verse 20, he says, Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. There, he's making a very strong and bold link between the, what happens at the flood in Genesis 6 with now what happens with us in baptism. Interesting connection there. And then, if that weren't enough for controversial verses, verse 19 has sparked a lot more controversy too, wherein it seemingly suggests that Jesus uh, preached to imprisoned spirits in hell, as, he, as it says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. A verse which has led many such preachers and expositors of the word to suggest that Jesus, while he was on the cross, went to hell and preached to imprisoned spirits in, uh, in, in hell and, and preached to them. Which, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> this sermon is not, the goals of this sermon is not to resolve every controversy of this, of this section. But I do want to keep all of these things in mind. Because I think all of them help to explain this baptism event. We're Baptists after all. <laughs> we should know what baptism is and why we practice it and why it's very really important. I would suggest that oftentimes I think the baptism events in, the life, in our own lives... Is perhaps, something not, is perhaps something we don't keep as close to our hearts as we should. Something I will suggest even to you that, or I'll say, I'll confess even to you, that it's something that I don't often go back to and say, remember my baptism. It's not something that I think about. And I think that that's a shame, a shame on me. <laughs> Because Peter, I think here, is making a very strong statement to say to this church, remember your baptism. Remember what Jesus has done for you in a very strong way. And I think these words, I think, ought to inspire a really renewed and, and profound affection for baptism itself, this doctrine that we hold dear and why we practice it in the church uh, in the first place. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through three quick things to as we go through the doctrine of baptism as Peter explains it here. First of all, uh, baptism's definition. 
We ought to know what this word means and what this doctrine and how it is derived. If you go to verse 21 again, he says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That word baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which means to immerse or submerge. It's a word that occurs upwards of 70 times throughout the New Testament, by the way, or is alluded to up to 70 times. And it often, I would say, almost always carries the inference of cleansing or washing to purify, and especially washing to purify through the practice of dipping. Uh, Jesus uses the same illustration all the way back in Mark chapter 7 where he's talking about purifying from the inside out, so to speak. And here it's the same word and it's it's not just a mere sprinkling or a mere spritzing. It is a literal dipping. It's being washed. It calls to mind being cleansed for service. Let me read you some verses from the book of Titus. If you go to Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes an interesting connection there as well. Titus 3, verse 3. He says this, the Apostle Paul, Peter's uh, compatriot in the early days of the church, he says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. A word there which calls to mind, yes, baptism again, not the, not the exact same Greek word, but it calls to mind the same picture. Being washed before service, being washed before you enter into the service of the priesthood. And in fact, that's what he's calling to mind there, Paul is, the the priests before they were to enter into the temple, they would wash their hands in the laver that was outside. And this is what he's calling to mind here, that this is what the Holy Spirit does. He washes and and cleanses us from all impurities. you, this is what Peter, I think, is carrying in mind as he's talking about this word baptism. And in fact, that's what we should have in mind. That it, we are being washed for service. And this, I think, is also derived out of Peter's own testimony. If you go to John chapter 13, there's that wonderful picture uh, on, the, on the night before Jesus' death. Before his crucifixion, we have that wonderful scene of Jesus washing the feet of his apostles. We have that wonderful testimony where uh, Peter is, is stunned at the humility of service that Jesus is demonstrating here by washing his disciples' feet. And Peter said unto him, verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet, he says. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He too felt this calling, this calling for being washed for service, being washed before he enters into God's service. And this is what we see here. We see that baptism is a command, is a command by God that was demonstrated by Christ himself, and it's a byproduct of preaching. 
That after preaching should come baptism as a signal of what has happened in the preaching event through the course of souls coming to salvation. And it signals our participation in the Great Commission. If you go to Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be going to a couple of verses here and there. Just to get you into, or to get into your mind's eye, a full picture of, of what this specific event means. Of course, these verses are very famous as Jesus is giving the command to his apostles. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. This is Jesus' command to his disciples, that as disciples, they would be those who baptize other disciples. It marks their fulfillment of the calling that Jesus had given them, that you, you go and you preach and then you baptize souls. It signals their participation in the Great Commission and it signals their disciples' allegiance and profession of faith in Christ. So, The definition of baptism, I would like to say, is just this immersion, this event of dunking a person under the water to signal their allegiance to Jesus. And that's the assumption that we must work with, is that it's this immersion event. It's crucial in our Christian life. I think it's something that we must hold dear and hold close to our faith. But what it, what it, what is it picturing? Why is it so important? What, what makes it so, uh, so crucial to our life of faith that we get baptized? If you read throughout the Acts of the Apostles, uh, many times after preaching, it says then they were baptized into the church thousands of souls. It was something that the Apostles held dear. And why is that so? Well, secondly, I want to look at baptism's precedent. Baptism's definition and baptism's precedent. Go with me to verse 18 back in 1 Peter 3. Look again as Peter writes, For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth now also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's crucial to keep in mind that what is happening at baptism is meaning to signal something else. It's meaning to represent and be sort of a memorialization of something else that we hold dear in our faith. It's not just an empty event in that way. It's something that holds a lot of meaning, something that holds a lot of significance. It's an ordinance of the church. As Baptists, we held that the two ordinances that the New Testament church was grounded on was the Lord's Supper and baptism. And likewise, baptism bears just as much meaning and symbolism and importance as communion. Oftentimes, I don't know if we think about it that way. We approach communion with a lot of reverence. With a lot of uh, solemnness. With a lot of, yes, celebration too. 
We know and we, we know and we, we hold dear that it's, a, it's, a, it's an ordinance of thanksgiving. That when you approach the communion tape, you're, you're giving thanks for something that has been done. I think the same is true with our baptism. It's an essential truth, I think, that is gleaned from these verses. That we can cry, remember our baptism, remember that event in our life. Notice verse 18 Notice what Peter is, is, is the picture that he's trying to bring into your mind's eye. Verse 18, he says, Christ suffered once for sins. And this suffering, he says, brings us to God. Jesus coming as a human, coming in likeness of flesh, just like we have, is suffering in the flesh for our sins. And he says, this payment for sins was once for all. He suffered How? By succumbing to death. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. So his suffering brings us to God. But how is it bringing us to God? Because as he says, he was also, not only was he put to death in the flesh, notice verse 18 again, but quickened by the Spirit. He's made alive. Made alive by the Spirit. This is hearkening back to the resurrection. That yes, he was put to death in the flesh, and he was also made alive, yes, in the same flesh. Here we have this, this holding intention, the death and resurrection narratives of Jesus Christ. The messages by which he preached to imprisoned sinners. You see, I think verse 19, which I alluded to earlier, was sometimes this curious verse which some people have taken and ran with, which uh, some have taken and made to, made to say that it's Jesus preaching, having sort of a preaching tour in Hades, so to speak, for imprisoned angels. I think they're, they're whispering, or they're, excuse me, they're shouting where the Bible is whispering. <laughs> One of my mentors said that. That when you approach the scripture, shout where the Bible shouts and whisper where the Bible whispers. And to assume that this verse is somehow alluding to this moment where Jesus is doing something that is not elsewhere confirmed in scripture. They're shouting where the Bible is actually whispering. I think actually what Peter is here hearkening back to is that this very same ministry of the spirit, the ministry of death and resurrection, is the same ministry by which Jesus preached to you and I. We who were, as Paul elsewhere says, such were some of you. You were likewise imprisoned spirits, imprisoned in the darkness of your sins. And that you too were met with this message of death and resurrection. Which is precisely what is pictured in the event of baptism. Death and resurrection. This is Jesus' ministry. And this is what is pictured in this event that we hold dear to our faith. In the ordinance of baptism. It's connected to this promise. It's connected to this moment and this ministry of Jesus in the preaching event. But it's also connected to this picture of Noah constructing the ark. Look again at verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing wherein few that is... That his eight souls were saved by water. See here, Noah's faithfulness to construct the ark signaled his obedience to God's command. You can read those wonderful chapters back in Genesis where it describes the dismal state of the world that God had created. 
And God creates a, makes a covenant with Noah, saves him and his family through the flood, as it says there, saved by water. And here we have, if you go to those chapters, it's almost like a repeat, a repeating of the promises that were given to Adam. But Noah signaled his faith in God by his obedience, and such is what baptism does. It signals our allegiance and obedience to Christ Jesus. And such is why he says it's saved by water. Their presence in the ark, going back to Noah, preserves him and his family from the flood. And their survival of the flood evidenced their faith. They survived because they were faithful, because they obeyed God's words. And such is what baptism is made to put into our mind's eye. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus which preserves us from condemnation. And here is where we get to the precedent of baptism. Which I think is what Peter is here wanting to instill. Wanting to encourage us with. Is that this precedent it attaches us to the church. This is what baptism does. As he says there. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is what attaches us to the church, attaches us to the kingdom, just like it did to Noah's family. It's a visible sign for those who are saved. It's a visible sign that signals that we have pledged allegiance to Jesus. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. A moment in Peter's own life. Very early on in the days of the church. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Acts 2 38 says. Then Peter said unto them. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you. And to your children. And to all that are afar off. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. Saying save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. Signaled their repentance. It signaled their moment where they pledged allegiance to Jesus and said, Yes, we believe that thou art the Christ. We believe that your salvation is necessary. That we believe that you are the one who holds the power for remission of sins. As he, as he uh, sort of intimates in verse 38. They received this gospel. They received this word with joy and were baptized. They were immersed in the waters of redemption. This is what we see all throughout the Acts of the Apostles, by the way, is that repentance always precedes the moment of baptism. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Acts eight twelve says, But when they believed, Philip preached, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Notice, after they believed, both men and women, then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Notice also verse 26. We have this wonderful scene where Philip goes and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Go down to uh, verse 32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. And his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. All throughout, all throughout the scripture. We have the preaching of Jesus and the reception of that preaching of Jesus preceding the moment of baptism. It signals salvation by faith. Which leads us now to baptism's purpose. Baptism's definition and precedent and purpose. Because we have to hold, uh, yes, together in tension that it signals salvation, but it cannot actually save you. Baptism is not an empty sign. It holds a lot of meaning, but it cannot actually saving. There is no saving power in just the function of dunking and immersing someone in water. Or else Philip would have went to the water immediately. No, it was after he showed him Jesus. It was after he showed him who his Savior was. It was Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who has the power of remission of sins. So what then is baptism's purpose? Why get baptized at all? Well, a couple of things. Baptism is a public declaration of faith in Jesus. Philip here was publicly uh, uh, encouraging this eunuch to declare his faith. A faith which was viewed as otherworldly, which was viewed as so foreign and scandalous, and especially in this first century. And it was a pledge of allegiance to this new way, the way of Jesus, so to speak. It's an open confession before men that the Son of God is your Christ. It's an outward seal of the salvation that Jesus has already secured. Notice if you hearken back to those, those moments of, of preaching that, that we examined in Acts from the Apostle Peter himself. He is preaching remission of sins through Jesus. This is what he has done. This is what he has accomplished. And then baptism is practice. It's not a means for receiving salvation. It's, a, it's God's ordained mode of demonstrating salvation. Demonstrating your saving faith in a public way to say, this Jesus is the Christ. But also, I think more significantly, it's a personal illustration of Jesus' victory. It's a personal illustration of Jesus' victory in our own lives. I think it's an affirmation of what he, has, what he has done. Such is why if you go back to 1 Peter 3, that's why Peter spends so much time in this paragraph asserting what Jesus accomplished. That once for all, he died for sins and he died this death and was raised to life through the Spirit. The same death and resurrection which he experienced, the same death and resurrection which he has everywhere proclaimed, which is for you. 
It's an affirmation of what has been done. Again, which harkens back to what we said earlier about communion. It's just like communion is an ordinance of thanksgiving. So is baptism. It's an ordinance of thanksgiving for what has already been accomplished. As we approach the communion table, we are giving thanks for the wonderful salvation bought with Jesus' blood. Same with baptism. We are giving thanks. Thanks to God, the Son of God, in Christ Jesus, for saving our souls by succumbing to death. Yes, as it says in Philippians 2, even the death of the cross. And then we have that curious image of the, of the flood in 1 Peter 3. Because I think we have to think about what happened in the event of the flood. That just as the waters of the deluge buried the earth in judgment. And that was God's purpose. That he saw that the, the hearts and souls and minds of men, as it says, and I think it's in Genesis 6-5, were only evil continually. And it actually says that he repented of what he had made. <laughs> that he covered the earth in water. Buried it in judgment. But also through that, as he says here, they were saved by water. Noah and his family were raised to safety through the waters of that flood. And such as it is with the baptism waters. Which picture this raising us to new life in Christ. There's a wonderful image that this very much speaks to in the book of Romans. Paul's excellent treatise on the doctrines of the gospel. Notice if you go there, Romans 6 verse 3. Paul writes this, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we have this wonderful picture that is the person who is declaring their, their, and pledging their allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Savior who holds the power of remission of sins. As they are immersed in water, they are picturing their union with Jesus in his death. And as they are raised up out of the water, it is a picture of their union with Jesus in his resurrection. Death and resurrection. Pictured as an immersion and a raising up out of baptismal waters. What a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of our faith. A beautiful picture of our gospel. Of the good news that we hold so dear. One writes this. Uh, Southern Baptist. Uh, for, um, uh, older Southern Baptist evangelist B.H. Carroll. He writes this. Baptism saves. Not actually by change of the carnal nature. But in a figure. It is the figure of. Of the resurrection. That's what's being pictured. That's what's being put into our mind's eye. As that person is immersed and brought out of the water. It's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. Such is why Peter writes. The like figure. Verse 21. Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. The like figure, or as elsewhere translated, the antitype, which is meaning it's, it's a typal or sort of standard picture, figure uh, of that which truly saves us. Jesus' death and resurrection. 
So by participating in baptism, we are participating by faith in Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. We are then therefore declaring as living parables the salvation by grace through faith that we have in Jesus. And that just as he was raised, so will we also be raised. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 6. Where it talks about that Jesus, well, let me just read it. I'll, I won't, I'll just mess it up if I try and quote it. Ephesians 2, Paul there again writes, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus was raised and raised to seats of, of the, the, the seat of authority on the right hand of his father, so too are we raised. Raised like him through this, uh, what is pictured in baptism. It's an outward memento of the resurrection of our souls from sin. It, it memorializes the remission of sins as we elsewhere talked about that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. And it commemorates our life of service. But now, now this resurrection of our souls has occurred through faith in Jesus. And we are now set out to live as disciples in the world. And here we come back to 1 Peter 3. We've had all of these Spheres of subjection, of submission. And here in 1 Peter 3, we have this submission to baptism. Submission to the same sorts of humility that Jesus himself was, was submitted to. Wherein we too can say, remember your baptism. Which is really a rallying cry around the resurrection. Keep that at the forefronts of your mind. Remember what brought you into God's family. That you who are far off have been brought near by Jesus himself. Submitting himself to death and resurrection on your behalf. When a person is put in the water and raised up. It's not just an empty event. It's an event with a lot of meaning and significance. Something that we hold dear. Something that we hold close. Remember your baptism. Rally around this event which harkens back to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Because that's what it's there for. One preacher, he was everywhere saying, he, he wrote this uh, exposition on the, on the parables of Jesus. And he said that death and resurrection are the key to this whole thing. As I've been studying and reading I believe he was on to something. We tie to ourselves and we are resurrected to new life in Christ. Everywhere there is always these two keynotes of the gospel. Death and resurrection. Die to the old man and you are raised to the new man. Die to that life of sin. Raised to new life in Christ. There's no better picture than that. Than in our baptism. So I say to you church, remember your baptism. Remember those waters. Remember what that was signifying. Your faith in Jesus. 
who suffered death and resurrection on your behalf too. Let us pray.